0: Welcome to the Competitional Antitrust Podcast. My name is Thibaut Schreppel. I'm a faculty affiliate at Stanford University Codex Center and the creator of the Computational Antitrust Project, which explores how legal informatics can benefit antitrust law. The project gathers over 55 competition agencies and 35 academics in the advisory board. Each month, we publish an academic article on the subject of computational antitrust. You may find them at computationalantitrust.com. Today, I am thrilled to be receiving Felix Chang and Erin Maccabee, who co-authored a paper for us entitled Doctrinal Implications of Computational Antitrust, along with Jaoui Rain, Joshua Beckelheimer and James Lee. Felix is the Associate Dean of Faculty and Research, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Corporate Law Center at Cincinnati College of Law. Erin is a Richard Fellow at the Digital Scholarship Center at the University of Cincinnati as well. To both of you, welcome, and uh, let us get started immediately. Uh, my, my first question is the following. I think it is fair to say that this article is a first, first of its kind. What you have done is that you have analyzed nearly 10,000 cases uh, in the space of antitrust that were uh, digitized by the Harvard Law School Case Law Access Project. And you've done so uh, so that you could actually reveal some linguistic patterns uh, in antitrust cases. So I was wondering if you could take us through your paper in two minutes or so, explain how you came with the idea for the paper, how, how you have conducted the research, and what is the main takeaway of it?
1: First of all, thanks so much for having Aaron and me on the podcast. We're really great fans of your work. Uh, so in answer to your question, it was Jim Hart, who was a colleague of ours on the University of Cincinnati College of Law's library faculty who had introduced me to the university's Digital Scholarship Center. A few years ago, I mentioned to him that I wanted to analyze how federal courts balance regulation and antitrust. This was a research project of mine going back many years when I was looking at the balance between antitrust and financial regulation. Uh, And when I mentioned that I wanted to do more work in this area, Jim put me in touch with DSC. At the time, the Digital Scholarship Center had secured this very large grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to build a platform that uses variations on topic modeling to analyze large data sets. So topic modeling is this form of natural language processing. It depicts the probability distribution of terms over a corpus of texts. Uh, What DSC did was they extracted two corpora of federal judicial decisions from the Case Law Access Project at Harvard, which some of your listeners may know has recently digitized almost all U.S. decisions in almost every U.S. jurisdiction up until about 2018. So we extracted um, all federal cases with the terms antitrust, which turns out to be about 35,000 cases, and also all federal cases with the term regulation. That was much larger. That turns out to be about 306,000 cases. Uh, we then filtered out the cases down to um, only those federal decisions with the terms antitrust and regulation. And it turns out that that corpus consists of 7,308 cases. And also another corpus was we had filter down to all federal cases with terms antitrust and market power and that was 2,591 cases. I'll defer to Aaron on the methodological takeaways, but doctrinally, we see in our results that both corpora are comprised of really large topic clusters uh, pertaining to main themes, such as patent, tying, um, general trial themes, uh, telecommunications, merger, class actions, also, other cases that delve really deeply into civil and evidentiary procedure. Through variations on topic modeling, we can also see some larger historical trends, like there's this diminution over time of interstate commerce commission cases and a rise in telecommunications cases and also class actions cases. That's not particularly surprising for those of us who study this area. It's consistent with this trend that we generally know as uh, deregulation. Um, Another historical trend appears to be the decline over time of topics featuring terms like manufacturing and dealer as the top terms. So that might suggest a pattern of industrial change. It's really interesting if you distinguish that from this really well-known A case study that had been done in 1985. That was the Georgetown private antitrust litigation study, and that was by Salem and White. So in Salem and White's study, they found, by contrast to our results, that 44% of defendants and 24% of plaintiffs in this study hailed from the manufacturing sector.
2: Yeah, I think um, my takeaways are more from the NLP standpoint, the natural language processing kind of aspect of this project. And I think for me, the main really fascinating thing about using the case law access project data set is just about how we can see case laws, linguistic patterns are hyper structured compared to other things. For instance, if we were to run models on novels, it would be wildly different. Um, And I think that's really an artifact of how case law language is hyper-structured. So I kind of often refer to the case law data set on our platform as just the most structured, unstructured language. And if you think about it, it really makes sense that we see that in our models since people go to years of training and education to properly use very specific language in very specific ways. And we see that structure reflected back to us in the models. Um, And as a result of that hyper kind of structured language, we're also kind of given a newer or a stricter kind of opportunity to test some hyper parameters of the algorithm, which come into place with Um, coherence testing and things like that because we see the results of those fine-tuned hyperparameters more clearly surface in a data set as crisp as case law language is.
0: I think it is indeed very important for us to discuss the the methodology and the actual implications of your work, and especially when it comes to empirical work, we know that in the legal field there are some skepticism regarding these kind of techniques, And uh, we also know that more specifically when it comes to NLP and topic modeling, that there is some more skepticism. And I think you do an excellent job at addressing those uh, points and criticisms and and explain why, in your view, and I very much agree with you, the, the findings of your paper are relevant. So could you please summarize the main points in this regard and explain to the antitrusters listening to us why, do you think NLP is actually the future or could be useful in the space of antitrust?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to talk about the methodological criticisms. Um, We incorporate many of the methodological criticisms of topic modeling from digital humanities and computer science. Uh, I would say that if you catalog these criticisms, they fall into the following buckets. The first is one of decontextualization where words are cut and they're rearranged out of their original context, hmm. oftentimes at the expense of their semantic placeholders. Um, the second is that the original designers of topic modeling seem to have envisioned it as an algorithm for indexing and information retrieval rather than for prediction. Uh, there are other criticisms of topic modeling that emanate from digital humanities, some of which you don't have as much control over and there are criticisms like, uh, the technique is emblematic of this type of scientific and computational creep into the humanities, yeah. uh, one that's particularly dependent on grant funding. So in answer to the criticisms around contextualization and functionality, the UC's Digital Scholarship Center aggregated the topic models. So what they would do is instead of the traditional running of you know single topic models, uh, DSC created this platform that could run six parallel models from different random seeds on each corpus. So then what they do is the results are incorporated into a single set of visualizations and it will aggregate topics into topic clusters. So on the platform itself, DSC also built this document retrieval function. That means that you can pull up the most relevant decisions to a topic or cluster. And what that does is that aggregated modeling then situates topics in like large and smaller contexts. So in large context by placing them into topic clusters, um, but also in smaller context by showing, of course, the constituent terms for each topic, but also giving the user the ability to pull up the most relevant documents, uh, that is decisions in each topic or cluster. Mm -hmm. So I I should also say that part of what we're doing is unsupervised machine learning, which can be a bit of a black box. So to shed light on that box, Um, you know, usually a researcher might do things like run coherence checks on the topics or extract random samplings of cases to see how topics change, depending on, uh, the cases in the corpora. So we've done some of these by calculating coherence scores. Um, but also being an interdisciplinary team, we're also reading through the top decisions in a topping cluster to make sure that they're coherent with the terms.
0: Indeed, I can imagine that if you were to do the same analysis in, in the space of IP or data protection or something in which you have no expertise—I don't know, tax. I mean, maybe you do have tax expertise, but this is not my case. Then I would be—I would be lost. Indeed, and I would know how to interpret the results. Uh, but Erin, uh, I think you wanted to say something.
2: Yeah, I think that multidisciplinary approach or interdisciplinary approach is super uh, key to how we work at the DSC. It also even though i have no expertise in antitrust case law um outside of this now i'm feeling a little more versed um i can notice some things in models just having worked with loads and loads of models across all sorts of data sets and across all sorts of disciplines that trigger some suspicion like if something is off in a model there's some parts of um there's some aspects of that that we can notice right away just in the visualization, whether or not we have the subject matter expertise, that this might be wonky because it's top heavy clustering or something like that. Um, the other thing I did want to highlight was what Felix was right to call out that document viewing ability. So, interacting with a topic or a topic cluster will populate this document viewer panel on the platform. And that was actually in response to feedback from our researchers on early iterations of the platform that said, you know, I might have subject matter and this expertise, and I do feel like this topic is saying this or its relationship is this, but I want some real ground truthing kind of validation of that suspicion of how I'm analyzing that, especially when we see researchers interacting with models for the first time and they're still kind of getting their sea legs, so to speak, in that type of analysis. It's really helpful. Um, It has this kind of added benefit, too, of giving your arguments in your final publication even um, this, like, earthy texture to it. It really grounds it back in the documents itself and brings the focus back to what the documents are. Um, I also just wanted to clarify what we mean by unsupervised machine learning here. I think when you say unsupervised, it kind of triggers alarm bells for some people, but really all that unsupervised machine learning means in this machine learning context is that the algorithm isn't given labels for the text in our data ahead of time. So it's not saying this document is about antitrust. This one's about regulation. This one's about, you know, um, milk is one of the topics that shows up um it's just letting that the patterns in the text the co-occurrence of terms surface on their own without any human interaction at that point in the algorithm um so that's really all we mean by unsupervised and um yeah i just wanted to call that out so it can feel like a black box but the flip side of that is human labeling isn't possible at the scale of thousands and thousands and thousands of documents. And also it is in in itself subject to human subjectivity, uh, that labeling process. So um, topic modeling does kind of account for those aspects as well. Um, The coherence scoring that Felix referenced too, I think also kind of helps give some additional layer of validation to our findings
0: and i mean on top of the objectivity issue when it comes to to humans being involved in in the actual analysis you also have the limits of our brain right so that's the beauty of unsupervised machine learning you may see patterns that will emerge although it would have been impossible for us to process all the information at the same time to be able to see those patterns so that's the beauty of it and that leads me to to discussing with you the substance of of what you you found out so as you explained, you actually uh, are using different types of visualization to, to explore the case law and the database that you had. Uh, the, the first one is already very interesting uh, because it helps to see a collection of terms that are statistically most likely to appear together. And so I was wondering which collection of those terms were, was the, the least and also the most surprising to you because I suspect we may... Um, we we may think that if you see price fixing, you will see exchange of information, for instance. Uh, but sometimes, I presume, it might be more, um, more surprising. So again, I'm very curious to hear about your reaction while doing the research, although it does not necessarily appear in the paper as such.
1: Yeah, so Thibaut, you're referring to the model of models visualizations that we get from aggregated modeling. I would say that among the less surprising results were the fact that these Interstate Commerce Commission cases declined over time. Um, you know, The dwindling of ICC cases is pretty consistent with what many scholars have written about, you know, people like Kearney and Merrill. It's this great transformation that we have from a rate regulation model to where agencies merely set the ground rules for competition. So it's a trend that we commonly call deregulation. Uh, We we do see that over time. Uh, Also, I think it's not entirely surprising that we find clusters grouped by theme. So for instance, when the topics are aggregated into clusters, you see large clusters uh, revolving around the same terms that are decided by the industry. So you see uh, patent clusters, healthcare clusters, banking and securities clusters, labor clusters and class actions clusters. Um, and these you see both in that market power corpus and the antitrust regulation balance corpus. Um, here, I was always surprised that any way we ran the model, there would always be a cluster of milk cases. That's what Aaron referenced earlier. <laughs> so it just seemed really odd to me. But once we started reading the cases, um, it, it seems that there really were a lot of dairy cases that were distinct enough in their vocabulary to comprise a topic. So. I would say that those are some of the less surprising and more surprising um, other ones, again, where the pattern of industrial change I mentioned earlier, where you see over time, this decline in topics that feature top terms like manufacturing and dealer. Um, and it's really interesting because the case law access project gives us a large, a really large um, corpus of cases and we can see a really broad sweep over time. So if you contrast that with some of the seminal earlier case studies that I'd mentioned, like the, Georgetown Private Antitrust Litigation Project by Salem and White. Um, If we contradistinct that, which was taken in the mid-1980s, you know, there you do find more significance of manufacturers, both as defendants and plaintiffs.
2: In terms of things that are in the model um, that I can observe even as a outsider, I'm always interested to see how endemic language shows up. So if you think of kind of every data set is reflective of whatever discipline it's a part of, it's going to have different language that you see across all the clusters. Mm. And Felix and I ended up choosing to ignore these words in our algorithm, calling them stop words, um, things like court and plaintiff and defendant. Yeah. Um, but I, I think for me, it's always helpful to kind of start there and see what those words are, just to acclimate myself to the language more generally. That's definitely um, filed under the least a uh, surprising category but i think some of those least surprising topics are helpful especially at the outset of our analysis because it kind of lets you know that the algorithm is working you want to yeah. meet a certain percentage of your expectations and those are really good at doing that
0: yes indeed that's the that's a nice way to to be sure that you are you know <laughs> following the right path um and and this leads me to the second visualization that helps to identify the top cases in specific topics, and that I suspect may be of particular interest to the antitrust enforcers and the practitioners listening to us. I was wondering while reading the paper how, how precise can it be, and more specifically, did you did you feel that you had enough data to analyze that, um, for instance, you know the mon the most com- commonly used cases when it comes to to tying or all the type of practices or did you have the feeling that you it was a good start but that you didn't have enough cases and data to actually come up with something which is statistically uh, uh, relevant so this is the first part of my question the second one because we've been discussing unsupervised machine learning um, and i was wondering what about using supervised machine learning where you would actually choose the types of clusters that uh, you 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 want the machine to to find to find out uh, was it something on your mind e- eventually because I believe you may need potentially less data with uh, supervised machine learning so what what was the process
1: here? Well, Thibaut, in answer to your question, I, I would just begin by saying that you know remember topics are comprised of terms that are most statistically likely to appear together. And the top cases are those that are most statistically likely to contain the top terms in a topic. So this is a statistical gauge of relevance that's kind of different from what the legal understanding is of precedential value. So that legal understanding of precedent oftentimes derives in part from how often a case is cited and in part on a much more nuanced understanding of the quality of a case in supporting a particular proposition. So we could probably run topics on antitrust cases with case names as key terms, like Microsoft or Alcoa or Philadelphia National Bank. Or
0: Trinco, right, Exactly one that you quote in the paper. Yeah. yeah,
1: and Trinco is a particular favorite of mine because I work in this space on the balance of antitrust and regulation. Um, what's kind of surprising is that if, if we don't use those cases as key terms, almost none of them appear where you think they might be. The only exception is Microsoft. So Microsoft mm-hmm. is the only case that consistently makes its way into the terms. And mm-hmm. Microsoft is just, we know it's sheer presidential value, but it also has this statistical value for how we define relevance. So back to your question, though, um, the top cases from our runs are oftentimes those cases that are most likely to contain the terms of the topic. So in this way, sometimes the results can be a little disappointing. Sometimes you can have a topic where antitrust matters very little. So for instance, from that very large antitrust and regulation corpus, uh, you might see a really litigation intensive cluster. Uh, It might be, once you start reading the cases, it might be over some regulatory provision where antitrust only comes in if the court cites a decision with the word antitrust in it. So some sort of maybe antitrust litigation, Um, or maybe in the market power corpus, you might get a very cursory treatment of market power so you know even in case even the topics that deal squarely with an antitrust issue sometimes we find that the top cases aren't necessarily the ones that we understand to be the most important precedentially um, that i think is kind of interesting as well so to give you a more concrete example if we have a cluster on antitrust immunity the top decisions aren't trinco or these older cases like gordon and silver which deal with the balance between antitrust and regulation. But instead there are oftentimes lesser known cases on antitrust immunity for state action. And here even you don't get the very well-known cases like the town of Halley versus city of Eau Claire until kind of further down. I, I do think that this is interesting though um, in showing what cases the machine thinks is relevant, but also because you know machine learning doesn't have the same preconceptions that we do, if we take a, a cluster or a topic like antitrust immunity, I come to it with a predis- predisposition to thinking, I'm gonna find you know, discussions um, and terms from like Gordon or Silver or Trinco. But it's interesting to see that it picks up a lot of state action uh, antitrust immunity cases. So it shows some connections across these two types of antitrust immunity doctrines that I, I didn't immediately perceive. So that was particularly interesting to me with my doctrinal background.
2: I can answer the supervised question. Um, So I think my gut reaction to that question is that because supervised machine learning requires some human labeling of documents, this is antitrust, this is regulation, this is about this, this is about that, and then training your algorithm on documents that meet those categories... So, you're kind of pre training your algorithm about what to look for. Mm -hmm. Um, That is definitely a space that a lot of work could take place in, but it kind of misses the general, the central thesis to LDA topic modeling, which is more or less letting these documents speak for themselves, like unearthing the latent patterns in the language itself. So, that's where we see this distinction that Felix is talking about between precedence as relevance and vocabulary overlap as relevance. Um, So we're really asking a different question. But just to kind of explore the possibility of supervised learning applied to this, I think it could be just in terms of brain candy interesting approaches to kind of combining these two Hmm. is if you had categories that you specifically wanted to designate as clusters and then used the cases that are very commonly used as precedent for those categories to train an algorithm, you could then sort a similar set of documents into those categories. But you would be missing out on um, a little bit of those documents um, speaking for themselves rather than predestining them to. Yeah. So the know, the
0: emergence topic. part will be will be gone a bit. But let yeah. me ask you the following question because depending on the the number of clusters that you are asking for. You may of course see totally different results, and it might be that sometimes if you have just three clusters or ten clusters or one hundred clusters, some of them might be more convenient, I mean not especially for researchers but but for enforcers, I could see that you know playing out or for defendant or or plaintiff so was it something that you experienced while doing the research how How did you come up with this particular number of clusters?
2: Yeah, I think well, part of it starts from a very human. Exploratory space of just let's see, we have you know 2000, let's start with 20 topics and just see how it looks, and then ask Felix as a subject matter expert to see if there's a certain innate coherence to what we're observing in the models. But the second part of that is where this coherence testing comes in, and we see what top or what models score the best at different model counts or different topic counts rather.
1: And there we found that um, the, the 15, the number 15, so the 15 clusters seems to have higher coherence scores. And what's interesting also is that, you know, in, Aaron also ran coherence scores against the random sampling of the corpus in general and found that the vocabulary, so the coherence scores were, were pretty tight. It suggested that this corpus of documents, um, you know, uses kind of a tight, set of vocabulary where there's not a great deal of variance. That's something that we would probably expect as well. So sometimes, you know, those of us with legal training can sometimes overlook this, but there is this very discrete set of vocabulary and style that goes into judicial opinions.
0: So what you end up doing is that you do explore different visualizations. Uh, to show how many times a particular topic or concept or even cases, I mean, just not the cases in and of itself, but the name of cases and, and the plaintiff, will appear in all the topics, uh, showing, for instance, that the term, the term market is all over the antitrust doctrine, which is not uh, a big surprise, but indeed, uh, it's actually nice to be able to prove it. And so I'm wondering how helpful you think those insights can be when it comes to reforming antitrust because you start the paper explaining that the objective of your article is to provide policymakers with uh, robust uh, uh, imp- empirical analysis before introducing changes in the space. So which type of um, um, reforms or use of those techniques would you envision and what was you know the thing on top of your mind while doing the research Did you think eventually, oh, this would be very relevant when it comes, you know, to this particular act before Congress, or was it more general?
1: Yeah, so Thibaut, you're referring to a couple of visualizations that we have in the topic browser view and the model of model views where we can show the connections among terms, the connections among topics when it comes to specific terms. So the platform that DSC built allows the user to click on a particular term, and then you can see... Uh, the the topics where that term recurs. So some of the results are gonna be helpful to an extent. For instance, there's this high frequency of the word conspiracy in the litigation clusters that suggests that horizontal claims are still where the action is at in a lot of antitrust cases. You can imagine where this research might lead. Uh, maybe you can show terms that judges often default to when they're assessing market power. You know, I thought when I started this project that I would find that market power analysis is all over the place. And some scholars like Sean Sullivan have suggested this, that, you know, oftentimes the approaches can be really inconsistent. I'd also thought that given the literature from Law and Econ um, from folks like uh, Arup Bose, Debashis Paul and David Sappington, this literature on how the balance between antitrust and regulation should be really context specific I really wanted to use this tool to understand how that balance has been struck in different industries across the decades but at this point we're still dealing with some inference challenges so sometimes the top cases will still seem aberrant when we begin to delve into them um, that's not entirely surprising if you run a traditional search in Lexis and westlaw you'll get a lot of aberrant cases as well so their algorithms you know pick these cases out as relevant but then when you read them, they're not really relevant to your research question. And even in that 1985 Georgetown study by Salem and White, you know, they had found that there were 26, 21.6% of the cases that did not feature antitrust as a central issue. Hmm. So that's one thing that makes the cases aberrant, some of them aberrant. Um, Also, the human associations for terms might be different than what the machine might suggest upon rearrangement. So these are some of the issues uh, that still can kind of challenge inferences that DSC and I are still working through.
0: And what about the time factor? Is that something that you could could measure? So for instance, could you see the evolution of the use of certain concepts over time? And what would be required for you to do that?
1: Yeah, um DSC built this nice functionality where you can see uh you can see this dispersal of cases over the decades and you definitely see ebbs and flows. So uh you could do that and I think that perhaps in the future what we might do is, you know, run closer searches nailing them down to particular decades or you know, particular, perhaps particular administrations or turns in antitrust doctrine or enforcement. Um, You know, off the bat, what we see some of the ebbs and flows are the decline of certain cases over time. In addition to the decline of ICC and regulated industry cases I mentioned, you know, there's this corresponding really rise of litigation centric um, in evidentiary centric topics and clusters, this huge explosion of class actions cases. Um, We also see, I think, declines over time of tying tying cases. So that really was interesting to me. I I wanted to drill down deeper there.
0: Yeah, because it seems to me that at some point, tying was the number one case when it came to Sherman Act Section 2. Uh, And I will be fascinated to see, you know, the action taken by, by Congress in the US and in Europe and all over the world in certain particular practices in the RIAs versus what's happening in private litigations and the type of practices faced by the parties. Uh, this will be quite a fascinating. And again, it relates to, you know, empirical work on the one hand, and then you confront the result with a qualitative analysis and expert analysis in the space, uh, which That's is exactly fascinating. right. That's exactly right. And so let me ask you the following question, because I, I know that some agencies are listening to us and you say in the paper that for the sake of transparency, you made the the code of, of your of your research and, and the models that you've been using uh, freely accessible and, and the entire database. Uh, and so I was wondering how hard could it be for another antitrust agency to use your code and apply it to their own case law? Um, and if you think it's not too hard, uh, what would need to be done to be very concrete? Should an antitrust agency be, be willing to, to start such an endeavor tomorrow?
2: Um, So I can speak to a little bit of that. I think um, I'm not so um, confident that I'm fully aware of what skill sets are available at an antitrust agency in terms of technical ability. Um, But uh, I would say there is some coding of like coding available that might cause um, a hurdle for some people. Hmm. uh, If you don't know how to write a Python code, that being said, um, LDA topic modeling, LDA is the algorithm under our topic models, is not a per, sp- particularly new algorithm, and there's a lot of documentation on how to use it, as well as some fairly out of the box approaches to applying LDA, where the DSC deviates from that more classic, a little more readily available out of the box LDA applications is by running these six concurrent models um, and then concatenating those. Our clustering algorithm that clusters and concatenates those models um, is also readily available, but there is some coding know-how that would be required to combine those two aspects of what the LDA or what the DSC's platform uh, has as output. In terms of applying it to European case law, I think for me, the biggest thing is just the accessibility of that case law access project is this huge data set with a very accessible API where you can pull all sorts of data and it's free and available and they're excited for you to use it. Um, I'm not sure if the same thing exists on the other side of the ocean.
0: The answer is negative. We are incapable of putting together all the case law in all countries in the same space. Uh, it's even, pretty
2: impressive though in any way that, it is very uh, impressive to do that so
0: you know 2021 it, it seems that uh, anyway that's a, that's a <laughs> different topic for another day but uh, and I just want to make it clear that the beauty of the competition antitrust project is that should antitrust agencies listening to us right now? Of course they can get in touch with me, they can get in touch with you. I'm sure you will be delighted to cooperate and, and to apply it to, to other countries. So uh, feel free to, to reach out to us. Uh, but all that leads me to the final impossible question. Where do you think we'll be in five years from now in terms of what is possible to achieve in the space of antitrust thanks to computational tools, knowing that if you are wrong, of course, I will put the recording of this episode out there and and prove you wrong. So no pressure.
1: <laughs> sure. I, I think at, at this point, we're still pairing topic modeling with traditional research methods. Um, and those methods oftentimes in the U.S. go through proprietary databases run by organizations like Westlaw and Lexis. We're pretty hopeful, though, that our results will push these companies to be more transparent about how their algorithms work. You know, we've made our underlying code available, as Aaron mentioned. And by the way, that code is the same that we've used for different collaborations with different disciplines on different data sets. So we've tried to be as transparent as possible. And in doing so, we're trying to get um, Lexis and Westlaw to be more transparent. That's really important. You know, there are scholars um, like Susan Mart at Colorado. They've run comparisons across uh, different commercial databases, and Hmm. they found pretty divergent results for the same search. So. I think, given that, it's really important to know how these cases are, are aggregated, how they're found to be important or relevant or of precedential value. I think that the data science in legal scholarship will continue to get better. That's in no small part because of the online workshop for computational analysis and law that's run by Mike Livermore at Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these groups that are just really sophisticated now. And applying data science methods to legal analysis. Um, for us, I'm hopeful that we can get to a scale where we can share this tool with other antitrust researchers and government agencies using different corpora of data, not just case law. Um, mm-hmm. So, hopefully, that will become possible one day. Um, and ideally, we might be able to use uh, different data that's become easier to access, like what the case law access project has done for case law. Um, I still also hope that the human element is not taken out. Our project is really collaborative. It relies on experts across multiple fields to vet the methodology so that we're not just deferring to the machine learning. Um, finally, I'll say that as an educator as a legal educator, I'm really heartened by the types of training that we might be able to provide to the next generation of law students.
0: Yes. Again. I, I, and I say the same to my students, don't don't be a dinosaur, because dinosaur will disappear. And a dinosaur is a, is a lawyer refusing any sort of computer science expertise. If, however, you embrace it a bit, and again, you do not need to know how to code everything on your own, you can cooperate with people, and then you will get such a, a nice competitive advantage over the older generation that uh, you may want to actually take it on. I, I was also thinking while, while you were talking that this will be, and I'm not, I have no clue that this will be the case, just to be clear, but this would be quite funny to see that some of those commercial databases will put certain cases on top of their research if it actually benefits their business model for the lawyers to use those cases. This, I mean, this is a possibility. Again, I'm not saying this is the case, but again, I very much agree with you that transparency is key in the space. Aaron, the floor is yours.
2: Um, Yeah, I really just want to echo everything Felix says, transparency, accessibility, and education of next-gen students, which having worked with my share of students here at the DSC who come through to be research assistants, I do see that every day that there's a more technically inclined group of students in fields that don't necessarily require that beyond engineering, beyond computer science, we see legal students, English students, history students with those types of skills already starting to develop. And that's very encouraging.
0: All right. Well, on that positive note, uh, thank you very much. It has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, again, your paper is already freely accessible on our website. You can go to computationalantitrust.com and read the paper. Um, thank you very much for listening and I'll see you very soon. Bye-bye and take care. Thank right. you, Tibo. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Tibo.